We assume a call to play ball is soon at hand. And then again, we've assumed a lot of things these last few months. And how's that gone for us? Trying to stay positive, assuming we all wear our masks and maintain social distance and there's no alien attack or a runaway zombie horde. Mark your calendar. Play ball. We'll be heard from an umpire's mouth, muffled though it may be from behind a face guard, on the night of Friday, July 24th, against the sad sack Baltimore Orioles. The first of not 162 games, but hopefully as many as 60. Josh Lewin with you for episode 262 of Red Sox Beat, presented by CLNS Media. 262. What do we got for 262? I got the career batting average of Rusny Castillo. All that and seven career home runs for $72.5 million. 262 was uh, Roger Clemens' ERA in 1991, the year he was in a rotation with Mike Gardner, Tom Bolton, Matt Young, Kevin Morton, Danny Darwin, Greg Harris, and Joe Hesketh. Hesketh was 12 and 4, Clemens 18 and 10. Every other starter I just named had a losing record, or was it 500 that year at best? Anybody remember Dan Petrie was a Red Sox? He was that year. The Carlos Quintana, Mike Brumley, Bob Zupsick years. Scott Cooper, Kevin Romine, Wayne Housie. All right, I'll, I'll stop. Anyway, the Sox uh, barely over 500 that year, 84 wins. 84 wins this year is not possible. 60 is the max. If you win 33, you're probably in the playoffs. We will talk about all of that in a bit with the great Sean McAdam. He is our featured writer on this episode. We're also going to get back into our satchel of spring training interviews. And who knew these would end up being popular? I just tried to talk to as many random Red Sox as I could way back in late February. Figuring now we'll sprinkle these interviews in here, there, and everywhere during the season. Since there is no real season, let's start grinding through these interviews. We're going to have Colton Brewer. That's as random as I can get. But uh, a guy that I think is just a terrific spirit and... uh, Wears the uniform so proudly. I think you're going to like hearing from Colton Brewer. We'll do that in a little bit as well. And hey, you know, there is no shortage of action going on right now with Bet Online Sports. They are making their way back with the UFC and NASCAR and soccer leading the way, of course. But Bet Online has all the best odds and lines for the upcoming matches this weekend, for example. Bet Online has simulated stuff for you as well. Casino games, poker tournaments, all the best props in the business. You got to go. You got to visit betonline.ag or use your mobile device and join as soon as you can. You'll get the special welcome bonuses from us, too, if you go and, uh, and hook it up that way. That's BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Always proud to have them part of everything that uh, they're with here on CLNS, including Red Sox Beat. One thing I, I want to get to, because nobody seems to be talking about this, again, assuming we have a season, there's going to be a lot of expectation on Alex Verdugo in there with Mookie now playing ball in L.A. David Price is not, by the way. We'll talk more about that in a bit, too. Alex Verdugo will wear number 99. No Red Sox player has ever worn higher than 94, if you remember Dolly or Hinojosa for one game in 2015. But a quick Verdugo story for you. Take you all the way back, actually, to 1989. Not too far away from when we were just talking about Bob Zubsik. But a very adrift Las Vegas teenager by the name of Andre Agassi found a guy named Gil Reyes, who was then the strength coach for UNLV's basketball team. 
when the Running Rebels won the national title in 1990, Reyes quit so he could just full-time tutor Andre Agassi, and he built him up mentally and physically. I think mentally more than anything else. But uh, Agassi, of course, became a sporting icon, would go on to describe Reyes as his surrogate father. Well, fast forward a few years, Reyes had himself a new mentee, another young, athletically gifted guy, kind of a prodigy, but a little bit out there. And Alex Verdugo was that guy. Met with Reyes five years ago. That was through a cousin who served as general counsel for Agassi and his wife at the time, Steffi Graf. And uh, there was Verdugo with Gil Reyes, 2015-2016, and a lot of hard work both physically and mentally there, kind of a behavioral transformation because we don't need another Manny Ramirez, a guy who wore 99 in L.A. Manny, by the way, will be one of the highest paid Red Sox players this year, just got $2 million bucks last week, That's the latest deferred payment from the contract he agreed to before the 2001 season. He's getting those payments through 2026. It's not quite Bobby Bonilla stuff, but uh, there it is. Dustin Pedroia is scheduled to receive $18 million in deferments from 2021 through 2028. Chris Sale is going to have $50 million coming his way from 2035 through 39 if you're scoring at home. It's like those future college football schedules you see. I mean, I, I'm looking at UCLA. They play like at Wisconsin in 2028, but somehow somebody's already done that work. All right, let's do some work now ourselves. We will get to Colton Brewer in a bit. I want to get to Sean McAdam first. Let's wind it up here and talk to the man from the Boston Sports Journal. So, Sean, thank you so much for joining. I know these are beyond crazy times. Walk me through since you're there and I'm not. Just the, the actual, when you're at Fenway, what's it like? Well, it is um, it, it is a different experience, Josh, certainly. This is my 32nd year covering Major League Baseball, and uh, I never thought I would need to answer a health questionnaire or have my temperature taken or, for that matter, conduct all interviews via Zoom over the course of the morning and afternoon, and yet, Thanks to the pandemic, that's exactly where we are. Uh, we were talking today in the press box uh, about the fact that it is possible that we will go the entire season um, while not ever coming face-to-face with the manager or many of the players that we're speaking to on a daily basis. Uh, all done in the interest of health and safety, so we understand, but... but it certainly is unusual and, and uh, unprecedented in every regard. What does Fenway itself look like? I mean, from, are, do you guys have any peek into the suites where the guys are pairing up to to do this uh, Noah's Ark dressing room thing? Or do you get to see the batting cages in the hallways? What's it all actually looking like? We are, are kind of sequestered in the press box and uh, under orders not to roam around the ballpark we are not allowed down in the seats or the lower bowl we are not allowed on the concourse uh obviously we are not allowed in the clubhouse but for that matter a lot of the players aren't either as you referenced um many of the players in fact all of the players i believe are using the luxury suites at fenway as an ad hoc dressing room so uh, when they report in the morning, they go through much the same intake that we do. In fact, uh, theirs is more rigorous, of course, because 
they're actually being tested for COVID-19 on a daily basis. We are not. Uh, so once they go through that, they go upstairs and are assigned along with one teammate, uh, one of the suites where they uh, get dressed and prepare and then come down through the stands and onto the field to take part in whatever drill or wherever they've been assigned, whether it's batting practice or infield drills or whatever they're doing. Uh, some are also being put on a shuttle bus in the morning and sent out to Chestnut Hill uh, about maybe seven or eight miles away, maybe not even quite that many, uh, the home of Boston College, which is sort of the adjunct training uh, facility. That's one of the drawbacks of Penway. And for that matter, every other major league ballpark is that there's only one field and one diamond and one mound and a couple of bullpens. So in order to get work for what is now 49 players in camp, uh, the Red Sox are sending some of their overflow guys and a lot of their pitchers out to BC's baseball complex, and uh, we don't see them at all um, and aren't allowed out there. So it, it's a rather restricted view. Uh, we see what is going on. Uh, well, uh, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, you know, you've been in that press box many times and in that broadcast booth. You see what you see is on the field and nothing else because you don't have access to any place else in the ballpark. You know, it strikes me, Sean, I don't know the last time you've seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, the one where he ends up talking to a volleyball. And frankly, I, I think we're all this close to talking to volleyballs right now is where we all are anyway. But the, before the plane crashes, his biggest problem is he's got like a toothache and he's in there like studying his tooth in the in the bathroom mirror of the plane like it's the biggest problem that he's ever going to face. Then all of a sudden everybody's dead except for him and he's a castaway. So, it, I mean, it feels like some of that with baseball is kind of true, too, where, you know, why are they not playing this game in the in the afternoon you know why is this one you know, on a getaway day why are they playing at 7 10 p.m and how come they close the press box dining room in the seventh inning and it's almost embarrassing that that's the kind of stuff that we used to worry about yeah it has certainly put things in perspective um i, I will say that you know there, there's kind of a gallows humor about it um i i think you also know josh that there are few professions or industries where people complain more than the sports media uh, about the things that inconvenience us and travel and, oh, this game's going into extra innings, I'm going to miss my flight, all those things. Uh, you know, the, the last few months has put that into perspective, hopefully for many of us. Uh, it, it is not the, it is not typical or normal what we're going through, but then that's to be expected because these are hardly typical or normal times. You got a peek at the schedule as we're recording this on a Monday evening, and seven of the first 22 games of the year at Yankee Stadium. Terrific. Uh, Yankees, by the way, closed with 20 of 23 games against teams that lost at least 95 times last year. And, you know, everything's new. Everything's going to be weird. I get it. It's an Orioles opener. The Orioles haven't opened a season at Fenway since 1966. Yeah when Frank Robinson was brought in from Cincinnati. I mean, that's a long time ago. But when you looked at the schedule, were you excited, Sean, just to see a schedule? So you're telling me that the Orioles are going to have someone 
who wins the triple crown this year, Josh? Is that your, your way of, <laughs> that's uh, where, of explaining this? Because that's why Frank Robinson was a triple crown winner in 1966. Um, to be followed a year later by Yaz, of course, and uh, and only one in the American League since then, Miguel Cabrera. I digress. Uh, yeah, it, it's the schedule um, is is like the rest of it, strange. Um, you know, the Orioles are an AL East opponent, so I hadn't realized it was that long since they had open the season you would have thought uh that there would have been something since then uh, i know the red sox in the, my time on the beat have opened in, or, in baltimore a few times um I, I suppose it's an easy way for the red sox to ease into this schedule strange as it is uh to play the team that may well be along with detroit and kansas city one of the three worst in the american league um so that helps a little bit and then on the back end uh i noticed that six of of the last 12 for the Red Sox involve either the Marlins or Orioles, although the other six are the Yankees and Braves. So, um, you know, look, we could sit here and analyze the schedule uh, forever and come up with little peculiarities or tough stretches or easier periods on the schedule. But in a 60-game schedule uh, where you're crossing over and playing 30-year games in the other league, it's all pretty strange right now. And... You know, we, we knew, I think, Sean, that at some point, look, I mean, even though it was great news to see that only 1.2% of the major league population had tested positive initially for COVID-19, we figured there would be a Red Sox component to that. Josh Taylor and Darwin's and Hernandez were the guys, uh, and, and thankfully it doesn't seem like it's as serious as, for example, Freddie Freeman is dealing with in, in Atlanta. But were you surprised it was only, at least so far, knock wood, Josh Taylor and, and Darwin's and Hernandez? Yeah, that's a remarkably low percentage for the 48 or 49 players in the Red Sox pool right now. They, of course, at some point will add up to uh, 11 more players before opening day. And uh, there's further no guarantee that there won't be more cases uh, pop up. In fact, I'd say it's quite likely given the exposure to, uh, you know, either Josh Taylor as part of the um, as part of the intake. Now, Darwin's and Hernandez is still in, uh, or recently was in Venezuela and has not made his way here. So he hasn't uh, uh, come in contact with anybody on the roster or the organization. Uh, we've also got the uncertainty that surrounds Eduardo Rodriguez, who remains home in South Florida, having been exposed to someone who tested positive. And uh, finally, we've got Bobby Dahlbeck, uh, who they are not confirming as a positive test, but um, is, is unaccounted for, uh, and they're, uh, you know, they've said there are some intake issues. So whether he got a false positive or is taking the test again, still, your point is well taken, Josh. It's a relatively small number of infections for 50 or so people. The trick will be keeping it that low. And, and you know, on the topic of tests and some people and teams having to cancel uh workouts both today monday as we speak and then this past sunday on the holiday weekend you've got teams that can't get the testers at the ballpark can't get their results they're unhappy with putting players and staff members at risk uh to a man the red sox people and players we've talked to have gone out of their way to salute the red sox for doing a good job with the protocol, with the idea of using the suites as uh, adjunct 
changing areas and, and clubhouse areas and making sure that everyone understands the rules and having masks available and having sanitizer available. Um, I, I, I was struck today as we asked about this, gee, all this chaos in some of the other camps, what's your experience been like? And the players were uniformly supportive of how things have been set up at Fenway. So uh, the, the hope is that it stays that way, but of course, no guarantees. So I, I'm peeking across the other coast here, Sean, and it looks like Mookie Betts will actually swing a bat in Dodger blue. David Price has opted out. Now, that'll save the Red Sox about $6 million in real money, and that's great, I guess. Uh, were you surprised about that? Because David obviously has his own way of doing things. We should note that he also paid minor leaguers out of his own pocket. I mean, so he's he's giving money away and not making much this year. I know he's already made a bazillion dollars. I get that. But what's your take on David sitting it out? Well, I, I think you sort of hinted at it earlier, Josh. I mean, David sort of marches to his own beat and own drum. And he's always been that way. So I, I think I've lost the capacity to be surprised by anything he says or does. Um, he tends to not expect himself to group think and makes his own decisions. And this is another example of that. Um, I, I uh, you know, I wrote over the weekend that I, I wondered whether Price's decision to opt out might not cause some sort of domino effect. Because as you know, uh, being around the game as much as you are, Josh. Price um, is looked upon by a lot of younger players and pitchers in particular as a, as a role model and as a leader. And uh, I wonder if his decision, and everyone has to make their own call, and as you point out, uh, Price has made some $200 million in his career and has got another $64 million coming to him on his deal after this year. So he is uniquely positioned to make this from a financial standpoint, but um, I, I wonder what sort of impact it has on others because uh, although fans in Boston may not remember him fondly, uh, his teammates always salute him for being a guy who looks out for them and that issue about paying the Dodgers minor leaguers is further evidence of that. Uh, I wonder if, if he might be kind of a Pied Piper in that regard, where some guys say, well, he's doing it. Maybe I should reassess my own situation. You know, lost in all the discussion of the, the really important stuff out there, Sean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, you know, somebody's got to get the ball on opening day. We know it's not sale. We know it's not price. Is it Evaldi who was tickling 100 miles an hour last time we all saw what spring training in Fort Myers looked like, and what's it going to look like beyond that? I mean, the, the Reds, for example, are looking at a four-man rotation where starters piggyback off each other. Gabe Kapler in San Francisco says he doesn't expect the starters to throw more than three innings the first time through the rotation. Uh, Tampa Bay, the, the Rays, uh, Charlie Morton is expecting to throw four innings, and that's it when the season starts. It doesn't look like the Red Sox are really doing all that, right? I mean, if Evaldi can ramp up to go five or six on opening day, would he do that? Yeah, I, I've been struck by that too, Josh, that both um, uh, both Ron Renicky, the manager, and Dave Bush, the pitching coach, have taken kind of traditional, no, we're, we're, we're thinking these guys are going to be good for five or six and 80 or 90 right out of 
and shoot. So, um, you know, for a, a, an organization that is definitely analytically inclined and has a general manager who certainly he has been unafraid to experiment and be a little unorthodox, he, of course, was uh, with the Rays when they instituted the opener uh, concept. So it's not as if uh, Heim Bloom or anybody else here is afraid to do something a little uh, different. But right now they're looking at kind of a four-man rotation with the fifth spot going to a closer role, uh, to an opener role rather. So uh, given Rodriguez's delays in getting here, that may have already taken him out of the opening day assignment. And I wouldn't be surprised if Evaldi gets the ball on July 24th. But I think you're looking at a front four in some form or fashion of being uh, Avaldi, Rodriguez, Martin Perez, uh, Ryan Weber is the number four. And then, as I said, uh, right now they seem to be leaning toward uh, the opener for the number five spot with any number of candidates in there. But they are not, uh, in fact, Dave Bush uh, flatly said he, he, was, he was not thinking right now about a four-man rotation as some teams are. They're going the more traditional route, albeit with the opener in the number five slot. Couple more for you, Sean, here on Red Sox BB before I let you, you roll back to what you gotta be doing here. Uh, Ron Renicky, what a weird introduction, I guess, to the Boston populace. I mean, this is a guy who's got a big league winning record as a manager, by the way. He's uh, 11 games over 500 or 12 games over, something like that. Uh, nobody ever thought he'd be a manager again, but here he is. How and I know you knew Ron a little bit because he's been on the staff. But how do you think he's doing handling all this? I actually think he's a you know um, I was a little surprised as the Red Sox went with him back in February when they made him first interim manager and then later took the tag off um, because I thought Heim Bloom being from outside the organization wasn't tied to anybody here. He didn't have a history with Renicky, and he would want to put his stamp uh, on this team by choosing his own manager. That was made more difficult, of course, by the timing of all of this, where it happens late in the offseason, where teams would not have necessarily have allowed uh, a member of their coaching staff to leave at that late hour, leaving them in the lurch. But the more I watch Renicky, the more I'm convinced that, uh, particularly under these circumstances, um, he, he may be uh, a very good choice here. And for this reason, Josh, this is a veteran guy. He's 63 years old. He's been in the game forever. He's filled virtually every role you could think of. He's been a minor league player, a major league player. He's been a minor league manager, a major league manager, and a bench coach and a major league coach. He's done it all. And in that sense, I don't think anything rattles him. Uh, you know, if you had a first-year manager or a first-time manager or a younger guy with all of this to deal with, the, the, the coronavirus, the late start, the three-month shutdown, the 60-game sprint, uh, that would be a lot for – and it is a lot for anyone. And, in, in fact, Renicky said recently that this is the busiest and craziest time he can remember that he's had in baseball. But I think he's got sort of this – uh, fatherly presence to him where he doesn't get rattled. And I think setting that sort of tone and message uh, to the players is, is an important one at this time. 
Last one for you, buddy, before you, you get going here. It's kind of a two-parter. I've already talked about Alex Verdugo a little bit. He's a newcomer that's going to be leaned on and looked at. The other one to me is Colin McHugh, uh, who obviously, if he's healthy, that's a big add. Verdugo and McHugh in that order. What's your take so far? Yeah, the, the good news on Verdugo, well, uh, on both of them, they're, they're the two probably most significant new pieces to this roster, uh, and neither would have been ready to play on March 26th had the season begun when it should have. Uh, but in the interim, they've had some time to rehab and, uh, and, and get healthy. Verdugo is a complete 100% go. Uh, he said so the other day. Um, he's able to take full cuts. He's checked the swing a few times. For those who don't know, he, is, he was dealing with a, uh, a stress fracture in the lower back and needed recovery time, but he's been cleared, so that's good. Um, McHugh uh, is not yet 100% go, but he's getting there. He did throw a bullpen uh, on Friday. Uh, he is, uh, you know, miles ahead of where he would have been at the end of March, where he hadn't even been off a mound yet. And, you know, I talked about the possibility of the, the opener in the five spot, but if McHugh can make some strides here in the next couple of weeks, he's an intriguing candidate for that fifth spot, or at least being part of the opener equation, maybe being the bulk guy where gives you three or four innings uh, after the, the opener is out after an inning or two. So, um, you know, they liked his versatility, Josh. He's someone that's pitched in relief and pitched well and also won in double figures as a starter only a few years ago for the Astros. So um, in that regard, like a, like a lot of other teams, the Yankees got healthier with Judge and, and Paxton and some guys that would have been delayed. Uh, that's the case with the Red Sox here with both Verdugo and McHugh. As I said, Verdugo 100% go, McHugh getting very close to it. Fingers crossed on so much of this. And, Sean, we could go for three more hours about all the different permutations and discussions to have. But uh, this is a podcast. It's supposed to be 30 minutes. We're going to try to keep it at that here. Thank you for everything. Stay safe. Stay healthy in this weird new world that we're in. And uh, hopefully, God willing, my friend, we'll see you soon up close. I hope to do that, Josh. Thanks for having me. Always good to talk baseball with you. All right, back to different sounding audio now because we're off of Zoom. Many, many thanks once again to Sean McAdam. And now we'll get you to that promised Colton Brewer interview from, my gosh, how long ago was this now? Late February? I can't even do the math. But as we do our little Get to Know You segment, and I think this is important that you get to know as many Red Sox as possible as part of why we're here Colton Brewer, the big right-hander out of Canton, Texas. He's 6'4", 230. Got in a 58 games last year. It would be astonishing if he did that this year. 4.24 ERA, but a 1.7 whip, which he knows has got to come down. So let's wrap things up here talking to our good friend Colton Brewer, winding it all the way back to spring training. About the Colton Brewer experience. Um, Always start out by asking, when did you know it was going to be baseball and, and not something else? Um, I think I was, like, really young, probably, like, in elementary school where uh, I was just kind of above everybody else's talent and playing kids older than me and stuff. And I never never in my mind thought back then I thought I wouldn't play baseball. There, hmm. was, there wasn't anything in the back of my mind that didn't have baseball in the picture. And so... 
I just kept rolling with it and kept trying, and I ended up in the big leagues. So you must have had a support system that was helpful. You didn't have teachers try to talk you out of it, a, a parent try to talk you out of it? I mean, uh, my parents were always very supportive, and um, I remember going to, like, some meetings and stuff uh, in school, and they were like, what are your plans for later? I said, baseball player. Every time, I was like, what about college? I was like, I'll play baseball in college. Right. And I said, what about after that? And I said, I'm going to still be in baseball, um, whether it's being anything I can do for the game. That's what I wanted to do is just do baseball. Hmm. And um, you're a persistent little kid, it sounds like. I mean, you weren't going to just not well, trace I mean, your dream. I mean, I was just, I was just, I was just really good back then, and everybody noticed that I was good too. And they're like, "Man, you're going to be good one day." I'm like, "No way." <laughs> well, I mean, I felt like if I could do it back then, I could do it when I was a little older. Just if I keep, you know, that same mindset of just having fun and realizing that the game is a game. Right. And I think it's. I think it's awesome when somebody somebody goes through that kind of thing. Like, if you talk to most people, they're they're gonna say, you know, I had teachers say, no, no, try something else, try right, something. Right. Yeah, but you know, I feel like everybody has a similar story, and was like, they just didn't give up, and they just wanted it. Is part of it? Do you think where you grew up? I mean, if you had grown up in a place where sports wasn't a big deal, or especially baseball wasn't mm-hmm. a big deal, do you ever think maybe it would have been different? Because in, in East Texas, I think people understand right innately that you know they what do. sports is a way to something. They do. Um, I think if I grew up in a little bit of, of a different environment, maybe where it was um, really cold during the winters mm-hmm. and stuff like that, maybe it would have changed my mind or like. And my dad didn't even grow up a huge baseball fan. He was a, he was a track star and he was a football player. Really? And wow. He didn't even play much baseball, but it's just something that I always knew how to do. And even when I was in diapers, my dad was throwing me baseballs and I was hitting it around the house like like I was Mark McGuire or something like that. But, um, I mean, I just kept – I just stuck with it. You mentioned football and because, again, where you grew up, I mean, mm-hmm. as much as baseball is huge mm-hmm. – Football's always going to be huger. So you mentioned your dad has that background. Did, did you try it and just not like oh, it, or what um, was that? I love football. I just I never got really the opportunity to start in front of some other players. I was kind of a late bloomer. And in baseball, you don't really have late bloomers. It's either you can hit the ball or you can't. You know, it's not stronger, weaker, you know, like it is in football. Um, yeah. I was a late bloomer. I was slow. Um, I just – and and I didn't play for a team that was exceptionally very good. And I wasn't playing either, so I was just like, you know, what's the point of getting hurt and ruining baseball? And I, I actually quit my um, my junior year, and uh, it, it was just strictly baseball from then on. And then I hit a growth spurt, and they're like, can you come play for us? And I'm like, I've already sold into baseball, and like, this yeah. is it. So, Are there players uh, that people would know, even if they're not from that area, Dallas, East Texas, that played football that were in your region and your county where it's like, oh, that's, I'd know that name. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, we've actually had, um, you know, I wasn't growing up, but we actually had a, a guy named Adrian Peterson who grew up uh, down the road from where we did, and everybody was like, if you could be like AP, you could be anything you want. I mean, and uh, we also had some guys in our district that did some D1 things, and went, a couple guys went to Texas, and one guy actually um, played behind DeMarco Murray at Oklahoma, oh, wow. and so he never really got his shot, I guess, because he had to play behind, I think it was Murray and Peterson at the, at the time. Did you go and watch those guys play? Did you know they were going to be that good? Um, never got to really watch them play, but when they came over and played us um, when I was, like, junior high, coming into high school, it's was like I remember who those, who right. those guys were. 
Are you a, a Cowboys fan? I'm, I'm a Cowboys fan. Would Cowboys you? Fan. Yeah, I mean, that's never going to change. No, it's never no. going to change, no. Uh, what about uh, other interests? Uh, I mean, do you follow the Mavericks? Do you follow the Stars? Um, I actually, you know, any sport that, was, uh, that, I, that I was decent at, I loved playing it and wanted to get better at it. And um, I actually loved the game of basketball. I actually loved playing it. I was, I hustled my I hustled my ass off. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. And uh, I would score baskets too, but you know, it's we, we growing up in that small town. There, we didn't have access to you know basketball lessons or or um, anything like that. Um, it was a DIY project, right? I mean, you got to yes, teach it yourself. Was, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was. Um, but um, so were you, were you like Mr. Floorburn? I mean, you just like get out there, dive around, and make plays. I mean, I mean, I was just, I just, I just consider myself a player that can. Um, I can, anything you put me in the mix of, um, I can go do it. Yeah. I may not be the best at it, but like I can play with anybody, you know. Um, I'm not going to slow the game down at all. But, right. Like you know, I'm I'm a I'm a student to any type of game, and I just love sports. That's well, just, and you grew up. I mean, I know you weren't like right in Dallas, but think of I'm just thinking about from Dirk Nowitzki to uh, you know the, all the guys with the Rangers, Pudge Rodriguez's and Juan Gonzalez's, all these people that that were just these. Celestial comets of, of talent that, that you I mean, could watch, and honestly, it, I couldn't have grown up a better time. And I was actually a huge Rangers fan too. Um, I mean, you had guys like A Rod. Um, you had you got Nelson Cruz, or you had Nelson Cruz on the team. As far as I'm sorry, I know when I was right. growing we had up, Palmero, you had all oh, you these had guys. all you had all these guys. Um, I mean, I remember going to my first uh, Rangers game, and I saw them. Like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like, there they are in the flesh, like, right? And, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, watching in this game, I'm probably, like, 10 years old, and like, I can play shortstop right now. I could take, <laughs> I could take A-Rod's spot. <laughs> right. But, you know, I mean, it's, I always felt myself in that atmosphere. Yeah. I, it, I couldn't – I couldn't – I would not be happy if I quit Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I was younger. You know, I would – it's just something that was always on my mind. It's just that I could see myself playing in the big leagues. Well, it's funny because, you know, LeVar Ball got all that crap, and rightly so, for yeah. a lot of his stuff. But, his, you know, the one thing that always stuck with me that I think is exactly right is speak it into existence, right? And you kind of, I mean, you did you that. Believe it, it, if you believe something will happen, I mean, the chances are going to grow for you yeah. for that opportunity. Thank you, buddy. Yeah. No great stuff. Right, there you have it. There's our good seven minutes with Colton Brewer. And there you have episode 262 of Red Sox Beat. We'll be back again early next week with a little bit more insight and a little bit more clarity, we hope, on all, how all this is going to look. But again, the big story, we know that there is opening day scheduled now on a Friday night against the Baltimore Orioles, July the 23rd. Better late than never. Thanks so much for joining. This is Josh Lewin. Bye-bye.